The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyon. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Our special guest, Brent Johnson. Brent, by the way, I was in Puerto Rico uh, three, four weeks ago. I'm a little jealous of, uh, <laughs> of your situation, which we, we'll talk about a little bit towards the end. All right, so, yeah, yeah. so Brent, I know we went through this the last time we did this space, but you know, just to set the stage for everybody here, talk about your background, who you are, and how you came up with the dollar milkshake here, and then we'll get into a lot of the stuff that's going on real time. Sure. So I'll, I'll try to make this relatively quick, but I was a uh, kind of a, in traditional finance for a number of years. I worked at Donaldson, Lufkin and Genrette in both Credit Suisse for almost 11 years uh, in their high net worth group where I was managing money for, you know, high net worth individuals. And really kind of in the middle of the, you know, global financial crisis, I kind of had a awakening for lack of a better word, where I realized that being part of a big firm was really, really hard to do the right thing for your clients, at least from my perspective, it was. And so coming out of the global financial crisis, I, I joined a, an independent firm that a friend of mine had set up. So I moved my clients over there. That was called Baker Avenue Asset Management. They manage a couple billion for, you know, again, individuals. Along the way, I set up Santiago Capital, which was doing some precious metals investing, some alternative investments. I was advising a few friends on you know, some other things. So it was kind of a side business originally. But then it kind of got to be a size where you know, it got a little confusing. Is Brent Santiago or is he part of Baker Avenue? And, you know, for, for a lot of reasons, I ended up just moving all of my business under Santiago Capital. And so Santiago Capital is an SEC registered and an NFA registered uh, investment advisory firm. Uh, we manage about $175 million for you know a handful of clients uh, through separately managed accounts and uh, a private fund, a few private funds. So my, uh, you know, the, the awakening that I mentioned in um, 2008 really led me to not just accept what I was told, and it really led me to kind of dig into... <laughs> how the monetary system is designed and how it actually works and how money flows around the world and all the different, you know, inputs and the things that influence it. You know, I probably was told this at one point along the way in college and I probably just learned it long enough to memorize it. But this time I actually went back and really made an effort to, to understand it. And the interesting thing about the whole dollar milkshake theory is it really came about as a result of me being such a big believer in gold. And that may sound a little ironic or a little counterintuitive because most people in the gold world, you know, are, are not fans of the dollar. They think the dollar is a horrible currency and that it's going to zero. And 
I actually don't agree with them or, or don't disagree with them too much on that. It's just that I have found that through my study and through my analysis that every other currency is even worse. And as a result of a number of the advantages that, that the U.S. has and the, you know, the global reserve currency gives, gives one, that it's going to be the last man standing. Um, I think we're in this global uh, super debt cycle for the end of this super debt cycle. And I think we're going to get into a period where debt matters. You know, it has not mattered. So I, I've been saying for three or four years now that we're going to have a global sovereign debt and currency crisis. And on Wall Street, if you get the timing wrong, well, then you're wrong. So I'm the first one to hold up my hands and say, you know, I got it wrong. It, it hasn't mattered. Debt has not mattered. So I've been wrong for the last, call it two or three years, four years. Uh, but I don't think I'm going to be wrong for the next two or three, four years. Uh, I think we are going to have this sovereign debt crisis. I think we are going to have this currency crisis. And I think when that happens, the dollar is going to get much stronger. I think the U.S., the U.S. dollar, U.S. assets are going to soak up all the global liquidity that gets printed. And that's where the milkshake comes from, is I think the dollar is going to drink the milkshake that the rest of the world produces. So that's a very long, rambling way of answering your question, but I hope that makes sense. No, no, that's good. And, and you know, on that point about you know, debt hasn't mattered. You and I both know there's this great saying, nothing matters until it matters. And then when it matters, it's the only thing that matters. And of course, there's always a fine line between being early and wrong. I always go back to this point that a lot of people were wrong in arguing that housing would cause a great financial crisis in 05, 06. They were wrong yeah. all the way up until obviously the Lehman crash. Right. right. So right. It, it, it's always about perspective. Now, Honest to God, Brent, I'm not lying when I say this. So I've been so overwhelmingly busy and I didn't go through your most recent tweets, but I saw one of your tweets happens to be exactly along the same lines that I'm thinking around what's happening with Japan and the yen. And I put out that tweet literally just before I seen that you were you were putting out some content around that, that uh, Japan is the black swan. And if you're not paying attention to the yen, you have no fucking clue what's really happening here as far as uh, butterfly effects. I want you to talk through how you're seeing this yen crash. What are the implications? We know it's partially because of the yield curve control, but I want to hear your riff a little bit around what's happening with the yen, because I think that may end up being the real story this year. Uh, yeah, so happy to talk about that, and I agree with you. I think, in my opinion, and it's starting to get more traction, but in my opinion, the kind of the breakdown in the yen is the most important story that people aren't focused on. Uh, I'm not going to say nobody's looking at it, because there are people looking at it, but it hasn't garnered the headlines as much as, you know, the U.S. 10-year yield, as an example. And so I'll start there. You know, everybody knows uh, that the U.S. 10-year yield has been rising. Um, it's to offset the inflationary pressures that, that, that the U.S. has been feeling since the, you know, the, the, the Fed's mandates and the supply chain issues and the, you know, the, the stimmies and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but, but, and, it's got, and it's got a lot of attention, and, and as it should. But the point I always like to make is this is not a uniquely American situation. Yields are rising around the world. They're rising in Europe. They're rising in South America. They're rising in China. They're rising, you know, kind of all over the place. And um, they're they're even rising, if you can believe it or not, in Japan, <laughs> where they've had deflation for decades and decades. And so, you know, they it's risen to a level where the the Bank of Japan has had to is having to make a decision. Are we going to save the bond market? In other words, are we going to continue buying bonds in order to keep yields low? But if we do that, then the currency falls in value, right? And so, but they can't do both. They've got to choose. So far, they have chosen 
to maintain the bond market because, you know, again, it takes a little history to understand this, but, you know, yields have been so low in Japan forever. And, you know, Japanese investors have uh, bought tons of these. And then the central bank has bought a ton of these, um, you know, JGBs. And they bought them with, you know, zero to negative yields. So if yields rise even a little bit, it wipes out pension funds and institutions and endowments. And, you know, you could even argue it wipes out the central bank's balance sheet. And so yields kind of have to stay low. And again, this is not just a U.S. problem. But the problem is, is in doing that, they're just killing the yen. Well, the yen, you know, ha- has been on this support line, this 40-year support line, where it's, you know, touched it several times and bounced it, but it finally broke through it. And if you're a technical analyst, there's not much resistance from here. And, you know, like those, you know, the butterfly that flaps its wings in one part of the world and that causes a you know, tsunami in the other part, you know, this has big, big knock-on effects in, in the world of macro. And where I think people aren't quite understanding is, is this is going to have knock-on effects for China because, you know, China is a competing regional currency. It's a competing economy. Um, and the last two times that, or last three times, or last two times that the yen has weakened significantly, it eventually led to the yuan weakening as well. Now, if you look at it on a chart, it's not real you know, dramatic, but it's because the yuan is a managed currency. It was pegged, and it still is kind of quasi-pegged. So you know, the, the PBOC kind of keeps that in check. If it, if it was allowed to float, I think these uh, moves would be a lot more dramatic. And this move in the yen is more dramatic than the other two. And so now you're starting to see the yuan weaken. And the yuan weakening, that's a big deal, too. And that has big implications for the rest of the world. If the yuan were to weaken dramatically or if the PBOC were to let it weaken or if they were to devalue their currency in order to fight the deflationary pressures they're getting from their real estate market, that would basically send a deflationary shockwave to the rest of the world. Now, you can imagine what the dollar would do in that scenario. And we all know if the dollar goes up, it causes all kinds of problems. So. You know, my, my point is, is that debt has not mattered for a very long time. But now the amount of debt is starting to matter, especially with interest rates rising. And I think you're going to see a lot of knock on effects um, that, that, that are that maybe the central bankers and the monetary authorities think that they control, that perhaps they find out they can't quite control. And so I, I, I just think it's, it's it's really kind of a interesting setup that we have right now. And I think it, regardless of which way these yields go, I think we, we get a lot of volatility. What's the lesser of two evils in that situation for Japan? Let the yen keep cratering or or let yields rise and end yield curve control? Well, I think it kind of depends on when you say who it depends on who you are. If you're the government, yeah, you're no, better no, no, off letting the currency go, right? Right, right. If, <laughs> if you're if you're a citizen, you'd rather have the bond market go and have your currency maintain some value. But it's a it's it's a really, really tough question. And you know, I, I don't pretend to know the answer. I just know that they're really in a tough spot. My guess is that they I think that they have to save the bond market. So now I do think actually that, you know, the yen has kind of broken through that 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 resistance level. And it's, it, you know, it's very oversold right now. It wouldn't surprise me at all to see kind of a dead cat bounce or a counter trend rally back to that uh, resistance line. But, you know, I, I think the kind of the, the horse is out of the barn, so to speak. And, and I don't think that the Bank of Japan can really turn around and save the save the currency and let the bond market go. Now, they might hint at it. They might have, They might get enough political pressure. It says, you know, we can't just crush the currency and they might have to make a few hawkish comments at some point in order to save the currency. 
But I, I, again, I think they're really stuck. I think when the really push really comes to shove, they'll save the currency at the expense of the, or they'll save the bond market at the, the extent of the currency. And this, this is probably a good point. And I'm, I'm sorry to ramble on, but I, you know, this stuff comes to me as I'm thinking, and I, and I, and I want to make sure I get this point across. This has been, I think, talked about a lot more with regard to the dollar than it has these other currencies. How does the U.S. get out of this mess? How do they, they have to keep rates low? So obviously the dollar is going to fall. And the point that I've always been making, it's not that I disagree with that. The Fed has the same problem, too. The U.S. has the same problem, too. But the, the issue is that the U.S. dollar has global demand. And many of these other currencies don't have global demand. So it's much harder for the other countries to deal with this problem than it is for the U.S. to deal with this problem. And it's not that the U.S. won't ever have to do it. I just think that they're going to have to do it last. And you can see that now. This is, you know, the, Japan is having to make this decision before the U.S. is. You know, we have not gone to yield curve control. At some point, will we have to possibly? But you know what? Japan is already there. Uh, you know, Europe has still not started raising rates. So the, the, the U.S., uh, as bad a situation as it's in, on a relative basis, you know, it looks pretty good. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. And all that, presumably, which seems to be playing out, the dollar keeps on pushing higher, certainly against the euro, but presumably that means at some point you would see the 10-year yield spike stop, right? You'd see some stabilization in Treasury. So I want you to talk through that dynamic because that's been one of the most frustrating things for me personally and professionally in that treasuries have not acted risk off at all you've had this really historically anomalous juncture where from a sequence of return perspective treasuries and stocks sell off one for one unlike the historical behavior right where you get that flight to safety yields drop as stocks become volatile I, i think by the way that's maybe starting to transition as i've been kind of teasing a little bit but talk through sort of that dynamic because i think people are assuming it's a foregone conclusion that yield rise, but they're not recognizing not only where on the term structure yields rise, short or long end, and then which yields, treasuries versus credit uh, risk corporate bonds. Yeah, yeah. So I I have a lot of friends. Um, because, I, because I believe the dollar is going higher, I typically get labeled a deflationist, which I don't really have time to explain it all. That's not technically correct, but I, I don't mind it because typically when the dollar goes higher, that is typically deflationary. And as a result, then a lot of people think that, I, that I'm a huge treasury bull. The reality is I'm kind of agnostic on treasuries, but you obviously have to watch them, right? My guess, my guess is that we will get an, a, another rally in bonds before this is all said and done. You know, I think we're kind of up near the top of that, you know, 40-year channel. I think we've, we've even poked through it a little bit. My guess is at some point we're going to get a, we're going to get a risk-off rally. And uh, those the, the, those treasury yields will come back down, and, and treasury bonds will rise. What I find more interesting than that, uh, two two things. One, to me, it doesn't really matter which way yields to go. Whichever we yield, whichever way yields go from here, I think it leads to volatility 
and uh, risk off. And so let me tell you what I mean. Well, if the yields continue going higher, that just makes the U.S. dollar even more attractive. If you can get paid more to sit in a 10-year treasury than you can in a Chinese treasury, then you're going to sit in the U.S. treasury. I mean, it's just it just makes sense. And, you know, over the last two years, you've seen the yuan dramatically outperform the dollar. You saw you saw all these capital flows into China, which supported their bond market, which supported their you know real estate market. But now those flows are reversing. And the reason they're reversing is China's having they're not growing the same level that they were. They're having these deflationary pressures in their real estate market. The yield um, differential that you got for buying a Chinese treasury over a U.S. treasury is gone. The U.S. treasury, I think, now yields more than a Chinese treasury. And so not only is China no longer getting those inflows, the money's actually starting to flow out of China. So I think if U.S. yields went higher, it just exacerbates that anymore. And money flowing out of China is a risk off for global growth. The other, let's look at the other scenario. If yields drop dramatically, well, then that's obviously a sign of risk off, right? And so, you know, if, if yields go from, I don't even know, where, where are they at now? 275, 285, something like that. They, if they turn around and go back, let's just say 225, think about it. I mean, it, it, they, they've doubled in the last year. You know, if it just went back to 225, that's a 25% move in yields. That would be, the, the, you, you would have to assume that there would be some kind of risk off event that would cause treasuries. To, to, to rally that much. So again, whether whether yields go higher or whether yields go lower, you know, I really don't know. I don't. Um, my, my guess is that they go lower, but but in either either scenario, I think you need to be prepared for volatility. Yeah, and, and to that point, that's why I think this is so tricky and for people to get their, their minds around how this could play out because you could have yields on treasuries go lower while bonds keep selling off, which is yes. a risk-off period. Yeah. And that, that's the thing is so far, you know, what's kind of surprising to me is, you know, we're starting to see these pockets of volatility. I mean, you know, equities have had, you know, a tough year so far, but they're still, I mean, even with the tough year that they've had, they're not dramatically lower than they were at the beginning of the year. You know, some tech stocks are a lot lower, but, you know, it wasn't just a week ago, the Dow was getting pretty close back up to its all time high again. And so despite the fact that the dollar has gone higher, despite the fact that yields have jumped, overall volatility hasn't really exploded. Now, it went high in, you know, when, when on the geopolitical stuff a month ago. And the VIX is at 25 today, but, you know, a week ago it was at 20 or 21 or whatever it was. So, you know, that, that's actually not too high. And I think part of the reason is that despite the rise in government yields around the, the world, spreads have remained relatively tight. And I, I think that that's going to break. I, th- I think, again, regardless of which way yields go, I think spreads are going to start to widen. And, and I think when spreads start to widen, that's when you really get volatility. You know, as long as the credit markets hold up, markets tend to hold up. Um, and But I think as credit markets start to deteriorate and spreads widen, that's when you're st- going to start to see, um, you know, some bodies rise to the <laughs> surface, so to speak. That's, that's 100% the way that I think that this probably plays out because you're right, spread stayed tight. So you had this whole shift in the bond market. People saw a crash in the bond market thinking that it's like every other big decline in bonds. It's not. Behaviorally, this is not one of those types of sell-offs you've seen. And yes, it's because of inflation. But if you were to have that spread widening event still to come, the bigger risk-off period to come, that's going to also slow the Fed down. I always go back to this point that 
you always hear this line that the Fed cares about the market, and everyone assumes the market means the stock market. What they really care about is is spreads movement, right? So, so talk through if you think the Fed is getting more and more nervous about the behavior of the dollar, because the dollar has probably been more effective at pushing disinflation than a measly twenty five basis points. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so there's a couple things that a couple points I want to make here. One. Um, is the Fed serious about fighting inflation and, and raising rates? Uh, and, and if they are serious, can they even do it, right? Well, the first thing I'd say is, you know, just think back a year ago. A year ago, absolutely nobody, and I shouldn't say absolutely nobody, but very few people thought that the stimulus checks would ever end and that rates would ever be, you know, raised. I mean, it was just a foregone conclusion that they were going to hold rates low, they were going to print money, and they were going to, through financial engineering, um, inflate away all the debt, right? It was, it was, a, it was basically a given. And, and the point that I always tried to make is that works extremely well on a spreadsheet and in kind of a, in theory. But it's really, financial repression is really, really hard politically. That financial repression is what leads to revolts, right? And revolutions, because you know, cost of living rises, your your income goes down, and, and the the you know the, the citizenry gets squeezed. So while yeah, it works really good on a spreadsheet, it's really really hard politically to pull off. And that's kind of where we're at today. You know, we, the inflationary pressures have got to a point where the Fed cannot just you know keep rates low and keep buying bonds. They've had they've had to start raising rates. Now I think you know, and then not only that, but the inequality issue you know exploded. So I think because of the political pressure that they're feeling, I think the Fed is serious about raising rates and trying to tame inflation. Now, and I think that they will raise until they break the market and then they'll try to save it again. Um, that, that, that's one thing I, I would say. So I think that they're more inclined to raise than a lot of people think they are, but it doesn't mean that they will be successful in it. The other point I would make, and this one is a little bit more, I don't know if controversial is the right way, but perhaps underappreciated. And I think a lot of people would push back on this. But, you know, when you when you consider all the debt in the world and you consider what, what we're seeing in the stock market and you, and, and you consider, you know, the you know, the, the shipping freights are rolling over and coming down and, you know, Ch- China's got these COVID lockdowns. You know, some people would be saying, whoa, why is the Fed such in a hurry to raise rates? Why are they saying we're going to raise five or six times? Why don't they just say we're going to raise once or twice and the 25 basis points. And, you know, I mean, they're kind of going out of their way to be hawkish. And I think part of it, everybody says that the Fed is independent and central banks are independent. And I personally believe that's the biggest myth that's ever taught in business school. I do not think central banks are independent. If you think of rate hikes in a geopolitical sense, they make a lot more sense than from a domestic monetary policy sense. And what I mean by that is, When Europe raises rates, they raise rates on Europe. When Japan raises rates, they raise rates on Japan. But when the U.S. raises rates, they raise rates on the whole world because the U.S. dollar is the funding currency for the whole world. And right now, you're starting to see, you know, this is is kind of the milkshake that I've been talking about. The rest of the world needs dollars. And the cost to get those dollars is rising. Not only the price of the dollar, but the interest rate associated with the dollar is higher. And so you've got this situation where global growth is slowing. Their top-line revenue is no longer growing as much, but now their funding costs are going up. They're getting squeezed, and they're going to have to start printing their own currencies to kind of fight these pressures. But it's the worst of both worlds because they're getting inflation in their local currency terms. 
but they're getting deflationary pressures in their funding currency terms. It, it, it's damned if you do and damned if you don't. I mean, they're in a real bind. And that's what I mean with these rate hikes. It almost looks to me like the U.S. is purposefully squeezing the world. And I think the U.S. knows that it's in a bad spot. So if, if there's going to be trouble, better that it's trouble that you're causing than it coming to you. <laughs> so now I could now maybe I'm completely wrong on that. But when I think of it in that term, and when I think of the dollar used as a weapon, which we all have seen over the last six weeks, the dollar can be used as a weapon. When I think about rate hikes being used as a weapon to squeeze our competitors, as opposed to just necessarily, you know, fighting inflation here at home, the hawkishness from the Fed starts to make a lot more sense to me. You know, if you look at uh, kind of retail sales, they're starting to come down. Some other economic indicators are starting to come down. So, again, their balance sheets are in great shape because of what went on over the last couple of years, right? But going forward, and so they have this cash on the balance sheet. They got these bonds issued at really low rates. You know, they've, you know, unless they're variable, they're, you know, unless they reset fairly soon, they're in kind of good shape. But but they need to kind of keep, I guess my point is that they're, they're stocked up. But when that stock starts to run low, how are they going to get it again? right? Unless the economy keeps humming. And if the economy starts to turn down, even though their balance sheets are in good shape right now, you know, they might not be in six months or a year. You can't really talk about debt, Brent, unless you you talk about housing, right? And and I've been pounding the table on this since maybe about a month and a half, two months ago, that using dramatic terminology, your home is about to be worth less. And people seem to think I'm saying worthless, which is not obviously the case. But I, I want to hear you talk about your view on debt and how the housing market has played out here, because I've talked to a lot of different people from different countries. And when I ask them, how is housing in your localities, they all say the same thing. And it sounds like exactly what I could say as somebody being in New York. This, this housing boom is a global phenomenon, which makes sense, right? So, so let's talk about leverage debt and how you think that plays out when it comes to what most people care about, which is the value of the home. Well, I think in general, I mean, I think this is pretty well accepted at this point that over the last, call it 10 or 15 years, people have been able to buy much more house than they typically would have been because interest rates have been extremely low. And, you know, the, the, the carry on the mortgage has been pretty low. And with the asset prices rising, they just keep, you know, selling one property, levering up into another one, selling that one, levering up into another one. And, you know, it's led to prices going higher. And it's led uh, to, you know, in many cases, you know, actually, I'd say in most cases, you know, somebody's home or their mortgage is both their biggest asset and their biggest liability. And so, you know, the, as you said, it's hard to talk about debt without, without, uh, you know, talking about housing. And not only that, but the cost of a mortgage, like we're, we're thinking about buying a, uh, an apartment here in Puerto Rico. And, you know, the, 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 the mortgage rate is going to be double what it was a year ago or, or, or 40% higher than it was a year ago. And so, you know, that, again, if you, the, if you locked in a 30-year, a year or two ago, it doesn't necessarily affect you uh, from a carry standpoint. But if that now higher rate keeps new people from buying, because now they can't afford as much home as they used to be able to do, because the rate is now twice as high, maybe the value of the home you bought a year ago is going to rate, right? And we all know what happened in 2008 when not only did prices have to go down, they just had to stop going up for big problems to happen. Now, I will also, so I, I think it's an issue here in the U.S. That said, I think it is less of an issue here, again, because I think we will be somewhat shielded. I shouldn't say somewhat shielded. On a relative basis, I think we will hold up better than the rest of the world when this debt crisis hits. 
that doesn't mean that we're shielded. It just means on a relative basis we're better. But where I think it's going to, where I think housing is going to be a much bigger deal and much more important is in Canada and Australia. If you were, if you were to look at like the debt to income and, you know, all these other, you know, figures for Australia and Canada with regard to their real estate market, and you were to compare them to those same ratios that the U.S. had in 2008 prior to the financial crisis, you would say that the U.S. in 2008 was a bastion of fiscal austerity. I mean, the numbers in Australia and Canada are just, they're crazy. And not only that, what people, a lot of people don't know is that in Canada and Australia, they do not have 30-year mortgages. They're typically, or they might have a 30-year mortgage, but they set reset every five years. So, you know, even if you have a 30-year mortgage, you know, the, the, the rate will reset. Now, think about how many houses were bought over the last three or four or five years, right? And now those rates are going to start resetting this year, next year, the year after that. And with rates going where they're at, that's going to be a big problem. Not only that, we go back to what I was talking about China earlier. Again, I think China's in more trouble than a lot of the rest of the world thinks that they are. And I think when China's economy slows, they will not be buying as much from places like Canada and Australia as they are now. And so I think that those economies could really get hurt from slowing global growth and rising rates, perhaps even more so than the United States. And I think that's what makes it difficult for people to really assess asset allocation and timing now, because it's clear there are these landmines out there that you could wake up overnight and suddenly the stock market cares about what's going on with property prices in China, cares about a deceleration in housing in Australia, Canada, and domestically in its borders. So how do you think through how to position in an environment where these one in a thousand year events may happen yeah. more consecutively, right? Because I, I really do, yeah. I mean, and, and it's, I always get to this point, it's like every tail risk is ultimately because there's too much leverage prior to the tail actually manifesting and showing that that low probability, high, high yeah. outcome event. I'll tell you, in general, what I always, so I, when I manage money for clients, I don't have, there are no two clients that have the same portfolio. I, I customize everything to them um, personally because everybody's situation is different. Everybody's asset mix is different. You know, some people run companies, some have a, a big uh, stock position. Some people inherited a, you know, uh, an individual stock from their uncle who started a company, whatever it is. So I always kind of tailor it to, to what they have specifically. But what I do with everybody, just as a roadmap, is I show them this concept. You've probably heard it before. There's various versions of it, of the permanent portfolio. And my, my version of the permanent portfolio is 25% cash or fixed income, 25% equities, 25% real estate, and 25% gold or precious metals. Now, if you had that portfolio and you just rebalanced it at 25% every year for the last 50 years, you would have almost kept up with the S&P 500 and you only would have lost money four times and the most you ever would have lost was 12%. So now nobody's actually going to do that portfolio. But my point is, is if you did just do that and did nothing else, you're going to be fine and you're going to get through anything. And so I I'm somebody who definitely believes in diversification and then try to optimize around you know, that that diversification when you see, you know, when you see interest rates at 5,000 year lows, maybe you underweight bonds a little bit, right? When you see gold at, you know, 20 year lows, maybe you overweight gold a little bit or what, or whatever it is. But my point is, is I kind of use that as a roadmap. But then what I also do is I do kind of tweak it. So I right now, I do not have any exposure to EM or if I have exposure to EM, it's very, very minimal. 
And, and the reason is, is because I cannot foresee a scenario where the rest of the world does well and the U.S. does not. But I can envision a, a scenario where on a relative basis, the U.S. does well and the rest of the world does not. So, so I, I, I have four different scenarios. One, the whole world can rise together and, you know, some new technology is discovered and we get global growth and everything's fine and we just kind of grow our way out of this problem. Now, I think that's a fairly low probability, but that's one probability. In that case, I'm just as good being in the U.S. or I'm, not, or I'm going to be okay being in the U.S. The second uh, scenario is that the whole world goes down together. Um, and if the whole world goes down together, then, you know, you're no worse being in the U.S. than you are being in EM. So you might as well just be in the U.S. Okay. The other scenario is that the U.S. does okay and the rest of the world does really bad. We've seen that very that many times. Yeah, anytime there's ever been an EM crisis, that's that's what an EM crisis is. You know, money leaves the emerging markets and comes to the United States, safe haven. So that 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 I think is a fairly high probability. The other last probability is that the U.S. goes into this severe recession, has this big calamity, and the rest of the world is sunshine and roses. Now, I think that last probability is so low that I don't even need to worry about it. But in all those other three scenarios, I'm just as well being in the U.S as I am being overseas. And so from that, and again, this isn't, this isn't to say the U.S. is the greatest place in the world and we have everything figured out and we don't have problems. I just mean on a relative basis over the next three or four years, I prefer to be in U.S. markets. I don't see a downside to being in U.S. markets versus being in EM. And so that's what I mean by I keep, you know, I keep diversification. I, I, asset allocation is important, but I do try to tweak it um, on certain themes that I see. And then on top of all of that, asset allocation, you know, we, we do a number of these kind of one-off asymmetric trades, kind of black swan tail risk type trades. Now, I'll tell you, I've been doing that for a number of years, and those black swan tail risk trades have not paid off. You know, in fact, they've done really poorly because the world has not blown up. Debt hasn't mattered. But I believe in having an insurance policy, and I kind of view those trades as an insurance policy against your portfolio. So we allocate, you know, between 3 5 3 and 5% of somebody's overall portfolio to these trades. Um, if these trades pay off, the three to five percent could literally become 20, 30 percent of the portfolio. If they don't, you lose your two or three, four, five percent. But that means the other 95 percent of your portfolio is rocking and rolling and more than made up for the you know three to five percent that you lost. So that's how I do it. You know, some people agree with it. Some people don't. But that's kind of how I that's kind of how I'm looking at it and how I'm planning to, to get through the next three to five years. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. I always use this line that your ability to stick to a strategy matters more than the strategy itself. Right? That's yeah, why right? the yeah. joke about buy and hold is nobody holds, right? That's why it's a, yeah. it's a fantasy when you think about it. Now, it's interesting you mentioned the permanent portfolio idea and you can relate it to its, you know, to its cousin, which is risk parity. And you know, I deal with a lot of advisors and I've had a few advisors ask my opinion on why is it that some of these risk parity permanent portfolio funds have done so quote unquote poorly? 
Yeah. And largely because of treasuries, right? It goes back to that as the right. real diversifier hasn't worked. So, of course, if you have any kind of blend with treasuries, it's not going to do well. But, yeah, I, and, and I talked through that, but I have to tell you, it's remarkable to me how short-term people get, even when it comes to diversification in periods like this, because diversification doesn't sure. mean you're not going to lose. It means that you are cutting off your own tails of the overall portfolio, right? Now, when you're dealing with separately managed accounts, as you are, right, it's a lot easier to handhold and talk people through that. It's very hard for people to get think beyond the here and now and realize that diversification still means you have losses. Yeah. Well, and I think I think the other thing too that people get caught up in is I'm just going to use this as an example. And I know I'm going to get hate for this because every time I've brought this topic up for the last three or four years, I always get hate for it. But like let's talk uranium stocks, right? The story has not changed on uranium for 10 years. And for the last eight years, it hasn't worked. But then the last two, it, it started to work really, really well, right? And so, but I mean, that was eight years of just nothing where it didn't work, but people still held on to it. And every year was the year it was going to happen. And I guess my point is, why is it okay to hold on to gold or gold miners or uranium or something like this that, you know, it might take five, 10, 15 years to really play out. But yet, as soon as bonds go down for six months, you got to sell out of them and never buy them again. Do you know what I mean? Like, and so, and it clearly uranium and, you know, the gold miners, they have much higher kind of growth potential than a bond does. But the, but the theory is kind of still the same. And I, I think it just kind of goes to people's, um, you know, it's very tough for people to kind of stick to a long-term plan, especially if the long-term plan starts to go against them a little bit. Um, it's, and, and, you know, it's the whole cocktail party thing, right? You're at a cocktail party and your friend's making a ton of money and you're not, you're kind of pissed off. And, you know, I want to make money too. And so I think there's a lot of that that goes on as well. But I think overall, to your point, like discipline and investing is probably the most important thing. And it's really kind of hard when when a portion of your portfolio is kind of consistently going against you. It's kind of hard to stay with it sometimes. But if you, if I think when, when, when a portion of your portfolio is really going against you, that's when you got to step back and you got to look at the portfolio rather than just the position. Because, you know, anything can happen with a position, but especially in today's day and mark, today's day with, you know, headline driven markets, you know, one false headline can come out and make a position totally go against you. And then 48 hours, that headline's refuted and everything's back to normal. So, you know, I know it's difficult to do, but I think it's really important to kind of come up with a long term plan and then, um, you know, kind of stick to it. And then the last thing I would say on that is whenever I get a new client, there, there, there's two things I always tell you. I said, every time we meet, there should be two questions you ask me. I said, the first question you should ask me is, are, where are we making money? And if we're not making money anywhere, that's a problem, right? But the second question you should ask me is, where are we losing money? And you're not. this is going to sound weird, but if we're not losing money somewhere, that's a problem too. Because if we're not losing money somewhere in the portfolio, then we're not diversified. And when that black swan comes out of nowhere, that rogue wave that we're not ready for, everything's going to go down together too. So uh, again, <laughs> some of my clients don't really like that. They're like, I want to make money in every part of my portfolio. And I'm like, I get it. I want to too. But I just know from experience that that doesn't tend to actually work out very well over the long term. And so it's really kind of an education process as much as anything. I love that because that's a variation of the line I keep using, which is that if you don't have a portion of your portfolio that you hate, you are not diversified. That's perfect. That's a perfect way of saying it. 
one, one point of clarification. I, I don't. I think it's very possible that the U.S. underperforms emerging markets. What I don't think is possible is for the U.S. to go into a really bad recession and EM not to go with us. So if everything's okay, okay and everything's growing, then the U.S. could definitely underperform. But in some kind of a global risk-off event, I don't think it's possible for the U.S. to go down and emerging markets to go up. So what would what would cause me to reassess that? Well, if in some kind of a global crisis, if commodity prices stayed high, which maybe they will due to you know all these supply chain issues, um, and those countries were able to continue to sell their products at a level that allowed them to service their debt and kind of do that kind of continually for I don't know a number of quarters or a year, <laughs> a year without you know without blowing up in the process, then maybe I, maybe I have to reassess that. Again, I don't think that that's very likely. I can't completely rule it out, but you know, I guess I guess if that were to start to happen, um, I would just have to pivot at that point. But uh, I, part of the reason I think it's a pretty low probability is I can't imagine too many scenarios where that happens. I try to come up with them, and it's just it's kind of just pure speculation on my part. Mm-hmm. Well, it's always challenging, and 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 part of the issue, and, and you know, if any of my clients are listening to this, I you know I apologize if, if this offends you in any way, but <laughs> a lot of my clients are extremely intelligent and extremely successful. That's why you know they are in the position they're in, and that's why you know they have enough capital uh, that needs some attention. But they're not necessarily you know. Dive, you know, uh, versed in you know sophisticated financial terminology or education or whatever it is, right? The, and 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 partly that's why they've come to me. Most of my clients don't want to manage their own portfolio. Uh, it's not that they couldn't; it's just that they don't want to. And then so they've hired me to kind of take that off their shoulders. But you know, to your point, the, probably the biggest part of my job is is kind of education and kind of coming up with an. I mean, I'm a very much a big picture guy. So I don't get involved and bogged down into individual stocks. Um, I try to lay out the strategy. I kind of come up with the big picture. And then I always try to have as much data as possible to kind of back it up, right? So I think the more data you have, the more easy it makes it. Um, And then the other thing is, I think most people who know me would agree that I'm not a yes man, even with my clients. Like if my clients ask me something and I disagree with it, I mean, I'll be polite and I'll, you know, hash it out with them. But at the end of the day, I'm not going to change my mind just because just because they they think it's a good idea. And so, you know, I think and I think if you are going to push back on a client's ideas, you, you have to have data to back it up and you have to have a good argument. You can't just say, no, I don't like that idea. Right. You, you, because at the end of the day, it's their money. So you have to have a good argument in it and you have to be able to not, even if you have the great data, you have to be able to present that data in a way that kind of makes sense. I mean, to be really honest, that's where the milkshake came from. I mean, I can't, I can't sit down with my clients and talk about the Basel three accords, right? I can't ask them to read a policy paper from the, that the Fed wrote in 1998 about inflation. So I have to come up with kind of normal everyday ways to kind of explain these kind of sophisticated concepts to them. And I think to the extent that you can do that, you know, it'll make your job much easier. But then the other thing that I would say is I have actually, and this is not easy to do, especially if you're a younger person who's kind of building your business, is there's been times where I've just told clients, you know, this just isn't going to work. You know, I'm just, <laughs> your, your, your philosophy and strategy is just very different than mine. And, you know, it's nothing personal. It's just that that's not the way I do it. That's not the way you want to do it. I just don't think it's a good fit. 
And so I think, you know, I, what I would say is whenever you're managing somebody else's money and you're trying to convince them of something is, you know, you kind of got to, you kind of got to have, you kind of got to have your philosophy. You have to be able to explain your philosophy and then you have to stick to your guns and, you know, come, come hell or high water. You know, that, that's, that, that's what you got to do. I also think you have to kind of attack some cognitive dissonance that happens during those periods, right? You know, everyone, there was this hunt for yield for so long, and now that there's actual yield, yeah. so nobody wants to hunt for it, right? And then right. people talk right. about making returns, and they forget that the biggest returns tend to happen after big drawdowns. Now, you can debate right. if the drawdown's over or not, but you have to kind of attack a little bit that the psychologically, I think, and, and nudge the, the end client a certain way. But to your point, Brent, sometimes the best thing to do is just to fire a client that's not a good fit. And again, you know, you don't have to be rude about it. It doesn't have to be a mean thing. It's just, you know, you can, just, you can smile while you're doing it. Say, listen, guy, <laughs> you can laugh and say, listen, this is, this is not a good fit. You're not going to be happy. I'm not going to be happy. You know, I can point you. To, I can help you find somebody who maybe is a better fit. And, you know, I, I can tell you your life will be better if you do that. Okay, so there's a number of areas I would love to invest in, but I don't want to do it now because, again, I think a global sovereign debt crisis is coming. And I don't expect you know, when a sovereign debt crisis hits, the last place I want to be is in an emerging market, right? I just, I think on a relative basis, they are not going to outperform the U.S. But if that sovereign debt crisis hits and some of the, you know, the assets or the prices in these emerging markets or frontier markets take a hit, then sure, I'd absolutely love to go in and buy them then. But, you know, I, I, I just think that the, what's coming down the, the pike is, is not good. And I, th- I think it's not good for emerging markets. And I know a lot of these emerging markets, you know, sell commodities and have natural resources. And now with, you know, we're in this commodities boom, that's going to help them. And listen, I get it. I understand. I'm not, I'm not discounting that. And it's very possible that I'm wrong. But I just, uh, I would rather buy them at a different price than they are right now. And I think I will get that opportunity if I'm patient. So, so the, the, the first answer on Japan, the, the, the reason that um, they haven't, defaulted yet is because debt hasn't mattered yet you know the the bank of japan issues debt and the bank of or sorry, the government of japan issues debt and the bank of japan comes out and buys it all and puts it on their central bank balance sheet and keeps rates at zero or negative and you know institutions go out and buy these negative yielding bonds and just hold them forever which is absolutely insane but that's that's why again debt hasn't mattered interest rates have not risen now this is kind of goes back to the problem that we were talking about at the very beginning. Interest rates are starting to rise. And when you have trillions of dollars of you know, either zero yielding debt or negative yielding debt, when interest rates go up even 25 basis points, it's a huge problem. And that's why the Bank of Japan has had to come in and do yield curve control. Now, how do they keep from going bankrupt? They don't. They're either going to default or they're going to kill the currency. Right. It's, it's 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 that simple. One of those two things is going to happen. They are not going to pay off all that debt. Now, what they could do, and I think probably will happen at some point. Again, everybody thinks that the central bankers and these monetary are out of bullets and they've got no more power and the end game is here. And maybe they are. But these guys are really clever. I mean, these guys always figure out a way to kick that can down the road. And I think it's very possible that the Bank of Japan will just say, you know what, the debt that you have on our balance sheet, we're going to write it off. It's gone. And we, the government of Japan, you don't, you don't have to pay us for that. And, you know, about three or four years ago, there was a panel at the Michael Milken Institute where they had um, a number of different strategists. And one of them talking about this issue. And one of them was the head of sovereign ratings for Fitch. And he was asked, if the Bank of Japan were to forgive the debt that they owe of the 
government of Japan, would you raise your credit rating or would you drop your credit rating on Japan? And the head of sovereign ratings for Fitch said I'd probably raise their credit rating. So, you know, who knows what happens? But my point is, is they can't they can't raise rates and they cannot ever pay the debt off. So they're going to have to be some, you know, shenanigans go on to kind of keep the game going or else we're just going to have this sovereign debt crisis that I'm talking about. And it's kind of the same issue with the United States. Like, we, you know, we're in a bad spot. It's, it's not going to end well. I just think that the U.S. is going to last longer than everybody else. And so I think we will be able to fund our treasury or, you know, through a combination of self-funding. Maybe the Fed helps out. Maybe foreigners help out. We'll fund our treasury longer than they will fund ECB treasury, longer than they will fund Bank of Japan treasury, Australia treasury, Canadian treasury. I think we will be the last man standing regardless of where rates are at. You know, I, I wish there was a way to kind of educate the world on the whole euro dollar market, because the fact is, is it's, it's this big spider web that nobody even really understands. And I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I understand it fully, because I don't. But I, I've spent so much time trying to understand it that I'm relatively certain I understand it better than most people. And so when I hear <laughs> when I hear these, these ideas that, you know, there is no dollar shortage or it's no problem to provide dollars to the world. Well, you know, take a look at the euro dollar market and then come back to me and, and let me know, because w w what you're touching on here and, and maybe this is a good place to end is that, you know, you've seen these these various graphs that show, you know, what percent of the bond market does the Fed own? What percent of the market does the Bank of Japan own? And while we own a lot of it, we own relatively less than the rest of the world on, on, on their balance sheets. But not only that, when you think about how the, 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 the bonds and the amount of stimulus that we did, you know, and they'll compare it to like M2 or something. Well, the problem is, is they're comparing domestic M2s to all these other central bank balance sheets. But the reality is, is that for the U.S. M2, that's a fraction of the overall global dollar market. So when you consider the size of the overall dollar market and euro dollar market in particular, the amount that the Fed has put on its balance sheet is tiny compared to what the rest of the world has done. And, you know, if and when we go into a, a, a situation where global growth slows, credit is not being extended, there's going to be a huge, huge dollar shortage. And, and I think we're just getting started on that. Uh, all I heard for the last 45 seconds was, you understand this. I just, I just want to put it out there. That that's what I heard. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Good, good okay, point. So, so as everybody here that's, that's joined, I certainly appreciate everybody spending the hour. Please make sure you follow Brent. I'm actually going to be doing another space at 5 Eastern with Gareth Soloway. Uh, again, I'm trying to play catch up on some of these recordings for the YouTube channel. Brent, uh, as always, I really do appreciate the time. I think this was very timely. Uh, and everybody, uh, please enjoy the rest of your day. So I'm not going to see you at five. Uh, thank you, Brian. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. 
Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.